You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is it, folks. The moment you've been waiting for. The pulse-pounding conclusion of this three-part series on humanity's long, difficult trek to find its longitude. Before we drop into this non-stop thrill ride, which is mostly cribbed pull quotes from Speed 2 Cruise Control, you should consider downloading the Vodacast app and listening there. Vodacap is just like whatever app you currently listen to podcasts through, but with one important difference. It allows podcast makers, like me, to add extra content, articles, images, and links pertinent to whatever it is we're talking about. Throughout this episode, I'm going to be pointing out some of that extra content. So if you'd like, follow the link in the show notes or search for Vodacast in the App Store or Google Play now. Now, without any further ado, let's get back to the frantic action, tinny dialogue, perfunctory characterization, and tried and false plot pilferings that are this week's exciting offering. <laughs> Reviews for Speed 2 are wonderful. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this, this is Long Story Short, Part 3. If you were surprised, or angered, at the end of Part 2 to find out that there was still one more to go, well, eh, so was I. I knew this would be a beast of a subject going in, but the precise scale didn't strike me until a few weeks back, when out of curiosity I performed a word count on the script and realized just how big it had actually gotten. I shouldn't have been surprised, though. After all, as I said at the beginning of part one, this is the story of the most difficult problem humanity ever managed to solve. So of course it's going to take a little while to explain. Not only that, but the particular way in which the longitude problem was difficult is different from most of the other contenders, at least to modernize. One look at the Great Wall of China is enough to inform you that building it wasn't easy. Eradicating polio sounded impossible at the time, and in light of the last two years, it only seems more impossible now. There may come a day when flying is so commonplace that people look back baffled that it took so long to figure out, but if so, it's going to be a while. In comparison, determining longitude just seems simple, obvious. The odds are that you have at least three devices in your immediate vicinity that can do it right now. And for at least two of them, it's not even one of their main, saleable features. Today, the idea of someone discovering a way to determine longitude sounds as peculiar as someone discovering air. Didn't we always know? The answer is no, by the way, and I'm sure we'll do an episode about that down the line too. So, before we finally get to the long and exciting end of this tale, let me take a few minutes to remind you of what's happened so far and just how not obvious this whole thing was. In case you've forgotten, the difference between latitude and longitude is profound. Latitude, the line that cuts lengthwise across the globe, is, and always has been, pretty easy to determine. That's primarily because the line of latitude, which we mark as zero degrees, is a real, independently determinable feature, the equator. Finding your latitude is really a question of marking your distance from the equator, a relatively simple task because, again, the equator is a real thing that the sky can help you find. Zero degrees longitude, however, is totally imaginary. It's a convention. We call it the prime meridian, and unless you're listening to this from a very different far-flung future, in which case, I'm sorry about everything, 
Then the prime meridian you know cuts through eastern England, western France, and eastern Spain in Europe, straight down Africa through central Algeria, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Togo, then into the Atlantic, all the way down to Antarctica. But different people at different times have placed the prime meridian in all kinds of different locations. Ptolemy made his prime meridian the legendary Fortunate Isles, which we talked about a couple months back in the episode Map and Territory. It's generally assumed that what Ptolemy was actually talking about were the Canary Islands, but due to his bad longitude taking from part one, his zero line actually cut closer to Capu Vergi. Capu Vergi was the prime meridian for a lot of Christian and Muslim sailors and philosophers in the centuries to come too, but not because they were listening to Ptolemy for once. Ptolemy had placed his zero line at what he thought were the Fortunate Isles because said Fortunate Isles were the farthest point west he'd ever heard of. Since nobody in the Western world had invented negative numbers yet, what was important to Ptolemy was that his zero was put somewhere that no one could ever go past. For the sailors to come, Capu Vergi made a good zero point precisely because they did go to and past and all around it. All the time. It was a common stopping place for long journeys. Gerardus Mercator thought that same line was a good prime meridian because he thought it corresponded to the longitude of a gigantic metal mountain near the North Pole, which compasses pointed towards. In 1494, the Portuguese and Spanish decided to move the prime meridian about 1,200 miles west of Capo Verde to settle a territorial dispute over which of them owned which Atlantic islands. Portugal got to keep Capo Verde, Madeira, and the Azores, whereas the Spanish claimed two islands recently discovered by all-round good guy Christopher Columbus. They were the mythical island of Antia and the very much not island of Japan, what would turn out to be Cuba and Hispaniola. The Surya Siddhanta, the first Indian astronomical book to talk about longitude around the 4th century AD, placed the primary in at Rhodic, 40 or so miles northwest of modern-day New Delhi. Most Dutch cartographers and sailors from the 1660s on used the Tide volcano as their prime meridian, although later on they switched it to go straight through Amsterdam. That was the trend in the 18th century, with each and every European government at one point or another drawing new prime meridians centered around their capitals. There was the Paris meridian, the Lisbon meridian, the Madrid meridian, London, Brussels, Antwerp, Pisa, Rome, Copenhagen, Oslo, Kyoto, you name it. Even the United States got in on the action in the early days, naming not one, or two, or three, or even four, but five possible American prime meridians. One ran through Philadelphia, while the other four were all located in different parts of Washington, D.C., running through the White House, the Capitol Rotunda, the old Naval Observatory, and also the new Naval Observatory. The trick is that every one of these points has an equally valid natural rationale for being the prime meridian. None. Because there is no such thing. It's totally arbitrary. Which means that, unlike the equator, there is no good independent way to figure out how far away from it you are. Just because the prime meridian is a fiction, though, doesn't mean it's not important. Without being able to keep some prime meridian in mind, sailors had no way to figure out how far east or west they were, and that led to a whole host of problems. Under ideal conditions, ships had to take inefficient routes that lengthened their journeys and put them at all kinds of risk, from scurvy to storms to pirates. Under less ideal conditions, being without longitude caused more acute tragedies. 
For instance, in 1707, the worst British maritime disaster of the 18th century occurred, when Admiral Cloudsley Shovel's fleet got lost on their way back to England and collided with the rocks of the Scilly Isles, killing somewhere around 2,000 people. That inspired the British Parliament to pass the Longitude Act of 1714, with some prodding from a conniving and bedraggled astronomer named William Whiston. The Longitude Act commissioned a board of navigators, scientists, and gentlemen to oversee a gigantic prize for whoever could finally solve the longitude problem. Submissions came flooding in, but none of them were very promising. For our purposes, what we need to know is that there were only two lines of thinking that held any real promise for determining longitude. Both of them relied on a simple premise. Since the Earth turns 15 degrees per hour, if you knew the precise solar time at your location and at some other one, whatever prime meridian you subscribed to, then you could work out the precise meridian distance between the two. The question was how you could be at sea somewhere in the mid-Atlantic and know, down to the minute, the time in Paris, or Rome, or London, or Greenwich. Most of the serious thinkers of the time believed the answer would come from the moon and the stars. If you had a really precise way to measure the apparent distance between the moon and some other body in the sky, a star at night or the sun in the day, then you'd essentially have a big planet-sized clock. And if, additionally, you had a good almanac that told you the time at your prime meridian in relation to your moon clock, then you'd have all you need, minus some fairly complicated mathematical formulae, to derive your longitude. When the Longitude Act passed in 1714, none of these components existed. Not the forecast of the moon, the map of the stars, the instrument for gauging lunar position, the almanac to find local time, nor the mathematical formulae for translating all of that into longitude. But the whole European scientific establishment was focused on changing that. The other viable way to win the Longitude Act sounds a lot simpler. Just bring a clock with you on your journey. A clock set to the time of your chosen prime meridian would obviate the need for any and all of those complex observations, measurements, and calculations. All you'd need to do was find high noon on your ship and judge it against the time the clock showed. Any fool could do it almost instantaneously. But making a clock that would be accurate enough to do this was as difficult and complicated as the lunar distance method. And while all the great minds of the time were focused on making lunar distance work, most of their feelings on the clock solution were somewhere between dismissive to outright antagonistic. In contrast to the unified efforts of European science, there were approximately three people in all of England who were working on the clock method. One of them was Stephen Planck, who offered nothing much of value to the pursuit at all, aside from the advice that a ship hoping to find its longitude this way should take more than one clock out to sea in case one of them fell off the right time. This was a pretty ingenious idea, and eventually led to a sentiment I deeply enjoy. In the late 19th century, there was a saying that if you were going out to sea, you should take three clocks, or one, but never two. If you had three, and one of them was wrong, you would see that it was an outlier and exclude it. If you only took one and it got off time, then you were screwed. But if you had two and one of them was wrong, you had no way to tell which one it was. With one clock, you might be wrong, but at least you'd be confidently wrong. With two, you didn't even have that. And insecurity at sea is even more dangerous than ignorance. 
pretty cool. But anyway, Planck's advice, smart as it was, was useless if no clock could ever be counted on being accurate. And that was the case when he wrote it. The best clocks that anyone knew of tended to get off by about 15 seconds per day. And those were Christian Huygens' pendulum clocks, only usable on dry land. At sea, you had to use a balance spring clock, also invented by Huygens, or else Robert Hooke, they fought about it pretty loudly, which lost or gained an average of 10 minutes per day. The difficulties in building an accurate sea clock were many, and we'll have ample cause to revisit most of them as we go along. But to get it all sort of in mind, let's say that you took the finest grandfather clock of the day on board with you to try it out. The first problem you'd find is that even under ideal conditions, it lost 15 seconds per day. Over the course of an Atlantic voyage, that means your clock would tend to get off of time by 10 or 11 minutes. That's more than 2 degrees of longitude, more than 100 miles at the equator. But those ideal conditions didn't exist. The rolling of the waves interfered with the proper swing of your grandfather clock's pendulum, rendering it essentially useless. So you were stuck, as I said, with some other sort of mechanism, like a balance spring, which didn't have nearly the accuracy of the pendulum to begin with. So that's no good. But even if you could get an accurate balance spring, you still had a few other problems to contend with. Really big ones. Changes in temperature would cause the metal components of the clock to expand and contract, greatly interfering with its timing. Changes in pressure also messed up its movement. Worse still, most clocks needed to be oiled to keep proper time. But the viscosity of the oil was also impacted by temperature and pressure, not to mention that any clock that was oiled eventually also had to be cleaned, during which time it had to be stopped. Finally, most clocks could only go about 30 hours before they needed to be wound, and at the time the Longitude Act was passed, there was no way to wind a clock without stopping it. I said there were approximately three people working on the clock solution. What I mean by that is (laughs) kind of complicated. After Planck wrote up his insufficient version of the clock method in 1714, he dumped it and moved on to formulating an also insufficient version of the lunar distance method. So that's roughly one person briefly. Then there was Jeremy Thacker. Thacker's proposal, also sent in 1714, included plans for building a clock that could run while winding and for a vacuum-sealed glass plate to mitigate changes in pressure. But there's no record of Thacker outside of his sea clock pamphlet. If he ever actually tried to build his clock, let alone test it, nobody bothered to say. There's not enough detail in his writing to suggest he could do either. Some historians have speculated that he wasn't even a real person at all, and that his proposal was just meant to be a joke. So, that's approximate person number two. Thacker's idea, though, whether it was presented seriously or not, was the best one forwarded to the Board of Longitude in its first year, and things didn't get any better after that. For years and years, no one submitted an idea promising enough to even convince the Board to convene. That meant that more was being lost. More time, more money and more lives. In part one, we talked about George Anson's journey around the Horn of South America on the HMS Centurion in 1741. More than half his crew died because he couldn't figure out which way to turn to get to his destination. That was just one of countless disasters, smaller than shovels but still quite terrible, that regularly took place while the Longitude Prize awaited its master. But, like I said, at the end of part two, That master was already on his way. In 1714, 
when the Longitude Act was passed, there was one man who was making real progress. It's just that nobody knew it. Or knew him. The last act of the longitude problem would be a race, a bitter competition between all the scientific minds of the world and one Yorkshire guy whom none of them had ever heard of. In 1713, John Harrison built a grandfather clock. How he did that is a question almost as difficult to answer as the one at the heart of this episode. Harrison was just 19, with no formal education. What's more, it doesn't seem like he had ever met a clockmaker before, let alone apprenticed with one. In fact, aside from some poorly sourced family legends, there's no solid evidence that Harrison, the poor carpenter son of a poor carpenter, had ever touched a clock before. Yet, in 1713, John Harrison built a grandfather clock, a pendulum design like Christian Huygens had invented. Except it was built entirely out of wood. From the box to the pendulum to the gears to the escapement, all of it carved by hand out of oak. That was all John Harrison had and all he knew how to work with. He made two more clocks over the next few years, acquiring a bit of a reputation as literally the only person in the surrounding area capable of doing so. In 1720, he was asked by his local member of parliament, Sir Charles Pelham, to build a clock for the top of his new stable. In two years' time, Harrison had completed a grand new clock that just so happened to solve one of the problems for using such a thing to determine longitude. The gears were frictionless so it needed no oil. No need to stop it for maintenance, to take it apart and clean it out. No problem with the lubrication thickening in the cold or thinning in the heat. There was something else about Pelham's clock, too. Something more subtle, but critically important. It showed Harrison's mastery with materials. He had chosen just the right woods and just the right metals to make a clock that would run, run accurately, and run indefinitely. It's still running right now as I speak today. After that, Harrison seems to have been more or less devoted to clockmaking, working with his younger brother to build even more radical designs. They were more accurate than any other ever built. What's more, they went a good deal of the way towards checking off another necessary box of the longitude problem. The pendulums on the clocks Harrison built in the 1720s looked like the bars of a prison cage, swinging back and forth, or a gridiron grill stuck inside a grandfather clock. The bars were made of alternating materials, steel, brass, steel, brass. It was a striking new look with an ingenious purpose. As Galileo and Huygens had figured out, the period of a pendulum swing was determined by its length. So, to make a proper pendulum clock, as Huygens had, you only had to make a pendulum of a length that swung every second. But under what circumstances would it be that length? Materials expand and contract as they heat and cool, and metals tend to be especially and noticeably susceptible to this. So Huygens' pendulum clock may have been extremely accurate when it was 70 degrees, but it ran slow in the heat ran fast in the cold. The pendulums in Harrison's clocks were arranged so that as the temperature rose and the metal expanded, 
it pulled the mechanism up. And when the temperature fell and the metals contracted, they pushed the pendulum down. No matter what the conditions, the pendulum's length remained the same. Thus, the clock kept proper time regardless of the weather. The Harrison brothers spent months testing the accuracy of their clocks, and before I tell you their results, let's take a finer look at the state of play of the longitude reward. To determine your longitude, you needed a really, really accurate clock. The highest prize on offer, £20,000, was for keeping track of your position within half a degree. That's 30 miles at the equator. And half a degree is equal to two minutes of time. If the clock fell off by more than two minutes over the course of crossing the Atlantic, which regularly took a month and a half, then no prize for you. Thacker claimed that his clock was accurate to within six seconds per day, but six seconds per day compounded over the length of the Atlantic journey meant four minutes of time. So even if Thacker's clock had been real and worked as described, it still wouldn't have gotten him first prize. The best clocks that we know existed at the time fell well short of Thacker's claim. The finest clockmakers in England couldn't build one that stayed within a minute per day. But Harrison found that his devices never lost or gained even a single second. In a month, his polymetallic gridiron pendulum had everything needed to determine longitude at sea. Except that it was a pendulum which, as Christian Huygens had found out, didn't swing well over ocean waves. But now John Harrison knew it was possible. He just had to do as Huygens had, transfer the principle of his pendulum into a coil, take the grandfather out of his grandfather clock. How hard could that be? The answer, for everyone else, would be nearly impossible. For John Harrison, it took just a couple of years. By 1730, he had created a plan for an accurate sea clock, or chronometer, as it was coming to be called. Thacker had coined the phrase as a parody of all the different omometers scientists were in the habit of inventing, and the public had said, that's pretty good, chronometer it is. Anyway, John Harrison thought he had a plan for an accurate chronometer, but he didn't have the money to build it. So he picked up stakes and moved to London hoping to convince the Board of Longitude to give him one of those annuities he'd heard about to get started. When he got into town, he could find no such board anywhere. Since the Longitude Act was passed 16 years previous, there had been no cause for them to meet. Inventors, scientists, alchemists, wizards, conmen, and lunatics were constantly submitting plans to the board, but none of them were promising enough to hold a meeting about. Many of the plans weren't even for longitude solutions at all. They were desalination machines and perpetual motion machines and all kinds of other inventions that not only didn't work on their own merits, but didn't have anything to do with the board's mission anyway. So the members had made themselves less and less available. In the background, some of them were working on the longitude problem themselves, or were acquainted with those who were. Edmund Halley had been on the board since its creation because he was the civilian professor of geometry at Oxford, but now he was on the board because he was the second astronomer royal. In this position, Halley was busy trying to pinpoint and predict the movements of the moon and making what he felt to be good progress on the project. And then John Harrison showed up at his doorstep. Harrison had come to the right place. Most of the other members of the board would no doubt have turned him away, laughed in his face, or ignored him outright. 
The board was stuffed with learned gentlemen who were bound to dismiss an uneducated carpenter. It was filled with Navy men like George Anson, who in 11 years would turn his HMS Centurion the wrong way, not knowing his longitude, dooming most of his crew to die of scurvy. Seamen like Anson and fellow board member Charles Wager, namesake of the HMS Wager, whose story I just told on the secret feed, were traditional navigators, used to using the sun, the stars, and charts to find their way. So they assumed those same tools would deliver them from the longitude problem as well. As did the final grouping in the board, its scientists. The makeup of the board changed based on who held what chairs at Cambridge and Oxford, and who was the Astronomer Royal, but they almost universally favored astronomy as the only acceptable answer. Edmund Halley was different. Despite his vaunted position and his many scientific accomplishments, he remained a genial, curious, generous, and humble person. He was also, probably not coincidentally, a foul-mouthed, drunken hooligan known for painting the town. He welcomed the obscure Yorkshire carpenter and wooden clockmaker into his home and heard out his plan for a marine chronometer. Now, Halley didn't know much about clocks, but he was wise enough to admit that and perceptive enough to think there might be something to Harrison's idea. Harrison hoped that Halley would call together a quorum of the board to grant him an annuity to build his clock, but Halley knew that that was never going to happen. Instead, he introduced him to his friend, George Graham. Like Halley, Graham was a fellow of the Royal Society, and like Halley, he had helped to debunk the possibility of using a compass to determine longitude. He built compasses himself, actually, as well as various instruments and contraptions, a cabinet planetarium for the Earl of Orrery, a special telescope that could be used to watch the movements of the planets for James Bradley, the third astronomer royal after Halley, who we will come back to. When Halley took the position, he asked Graham to build a mural at Greenwich Observatory that would double as a quadrant, allowing him and other astronomers, including Bradley, to help pinpoint positions in the sky. But more than any of that, Honest George Graham was a clockmaker, formerly an apprentice to Thomas Tompion, known as the father of English watchmaking. Graham was without question the most accomplished, revered, and sought-after horologist in the country. He greeted Harrison skeptically, but within an hour or two, he was bowled over. To someone embroiled in clockmaking in 1730, having John Harrison at your table was like serving dinner to a time traveler. A clock is made of dozens of individual fine components, and Harrison had improved versions of nearly all of them. His escapement, the thing that regulated the tick and talk, was worlds beyond what Graham was working with. Harrison's design had a second spring that allowed the chronometer to keep working while being wound, as the mysterious Thacker had suggested. And instead of a hanging pendulum, which would falter at sea, Harrison suggested using a pair of dumbbells locked together and rising out of the mechanism like alien antennae. Their first meeting was supposed to be a brief breakfast affair, just long enough for Graham to suss out whether Harrison was on the level or not. They were still talking late into the evening, and when finally they were done with dinner, Graham offered Harrison a loan of 200 pounds sterling, sight unseen, without interest, and with no timetable for repayment. He just wanted Harrison to be able to build the miraculous contraption he was hearing about. It took Harrison the better part of six years, but with the help of Graham and Halley, he unveiled his sea clock, which history knows as H1, 
to the Royal Society. You can see a picture of it via the Vodacast app now. When he first showed it off, H1 was housed in a glazed wooden cabinet that probably obscured its many bizarrely whirling, clicking, turning, and swinging brass components. Today, H1 still runs and can be seen on display at the Royal Observatory in, you know where, Greenwich. Its case is long gone, though, exposing the sheer and befuddling, gleaming complexity of its inner workings for all the world to see. Whether the Royal Society got a look under the hood or not, they were greatly impressed, and Graham wrote a letter of recommendation on behalf of the Society to be delivered to the Board of Longitude. It requested that, for the first time in its then 22-year history, the Board arrange for Harrison a sea trial of his wonderful H1 chronometer. The terms of the Longitude Act said that to nab the reward, a claimant would have to cross from England to the West Indies and keep within half a degree of longitude the whole way. But when Charles Wager did set up a sea test as Graham had requested, it was only to be to and from Lisbon, not a far or long enough journey to win Harrison the prize, just enough to act as a proof of concept. Incredibly, the ship that Harrison and his longitude-finding H1 were put on in 1736 was none other than the HMS Centurion, the flagship from which George Anson, who was also on the board, would fail to find his correct longitude when attempting to land at Juan Fernandez Island five years later in 1741. For the 1736 voyage to Lisbon, Centurion was captained by George Proctor, who wrote to Wager before the trip begun, saying, The instrument is placed in my cabin for making the man all the advantage that is possible for making his observations, and I find him to be a very sober, a very industrious, and withal a very modest man, so that my good wishes can't but attend him. But the difficulty of measuring time truly, where so many unequal shocks and motions stand in opposition to it, gives me concern for the honest man, and makes me fear he has attempted impossibilities. But, sir, I will do him all the good and give him all the help that is in my power. The winds were at Centurion's back when it left port, and the journey was over in a calm, uneventful week. Harrison had never been at sea before, and his stomach didn't take to it. He fared better than Captain Proctor, however. He suddenly dropped dead just days after the Centurion landed, and before he could write up a report on the performance of Harrison's clock. Four days after reaching Lisbon, Harrison and his H-1 were loaded onto the HMS Orford to be ferried back to England under the command of Captain Roger Wills. If Harrison didn't enjoy the first leg, he really hated the return trip. The winds were bad, the seas were high, and the voyage stretched on for four grueling weeks, which Harrison spent alternatingly checking his clock and vomiting his guts out. When they finally sighted a jut of English land before them, Captain Wills took it to be Start Point in Devon. But Harrison corrected him. According to the longitude measurements he had made from the H-1, they were 60 miles west of Start Point, at the most southerly point of the British mainland, called the Lizard. Harrison was right. Or, more importantly, the H-1 was right. With Captain Will's testimony, the Board of Longitude once again did something it had not done in its entire history. It convened. 
This might be an ad break. It could be. Let's take a recording break. We'll get back. You know what that is? It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed, from down the street to around the globe. Shopify powers over 1.7 million businesses, from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Not to mention that learning more stuff makes you more interesting. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learners and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI-DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor at any time and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. 
BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. On June 30th, 1737, John Harrison and his H-1 joined eight members of the board for an evaluation, the first serious consideration of a device or method for determining the longitude. This could have been the end of the story. It should have been the end of the story. Harrison was sitting high on the success of the Lisbon trip, and the board before him was packed with friends sympathetic to his cause. Edmund Halley and James Bradley, both friends of George Graham, had each signed the letter from the Royal Society, as had Dr. Robert Smith, the professor of astronomy at Cambridge. Admiral Wager, who had set up the Lisbon trial, was also on Harrison's side, and everyone at the meeting was impressed by the results. Harrison could have asked for another trial, the real trial, to the new world necessary to claim the prize, right there. But something got in the way. To everyone else in the world, H1 was like a thing out of science fiction. A clock capable of keeping longitude had been seen as such an impossible goal that Jonathan Swift had used it as an example of the absurd overpromises of scientific puffery, putting it in a list alongside perpetual motion machines and universal medicines. Yet, here it was, before their very eyes. To John Harrison, however, it was insufficient. H1 was 65 pounds, too heavy, he thought. And it lost more than a second a day at sea. Good enough to win the prize, but not good enough for John Harrison. Instead of asking for a proper trial or his due reward, he instead asked for more time and a little bit of funding to build another, better clock. The board agreed and forwarded him 250 pounds, with another 250 to be delivered upon receipt of his second chronometer. It took two and a half more years for Harrison to deliver the H-2 to the board, and he didn't do so gladly. In almost every way, the H-2 was an improvement upon the H-1, aside from it being about 20 pounds heavier. It was more accurate generally, better compensated for changes in temperature, pressure, and humidity, and when the Royal Society put it through its paces, they determined, after throwing it around on a seesaw for several hours, that it would keep time even in a rolling sea storm. Their report concluded, The motion is sufficiently regular and exact for finding the longitude of a ship, within the nearest limits proposed by Parliament, and probably much nearer. Again, the only person not impressed by Harrison's device was Harrison himself. Because a pendulum would be affected by the roll of a ship, the rocking from side to side, he had instead used those barbell-like balances again on H2. But in his own testing, he realized that they too had a weakness. They kept time fine when a ship rolled, but could fall off when it made extended turns. It was a minute imperfection, barely noticeable, and for Harrison, it simply wouldn't do. 
When he delivered the H-2, he again deferred from putting it on trial. Instead, he once more asked for more time and a stipend to make a third clock that would satisfy not just the board, but the man himself. They might have said, that's enough already. Give us this one, let us test it, and you can do whatever you want on your own perfectionist dime. But, as luck would have it, the War of Austrian Succession was in full fiery bloom, and the Admiralty were afraid that if they sent H2 out to sea for a long-distance test sail, it could be sunk, or were still stolen by the bloody Spanish. So, fine, said the board. You can have another 500 pounds, and however much time you need. He would end up needing 19 years only to disappoint himself again. The great innovation of the H3 was Harrison's new workaround for the pendulum problem. Working with his brother, he had found a way to use different metals together in a pendulum to account for variations in temperature. But, as I've said at least a dozen times now, a pendulum wouldn't work on a rolling ship. Either Christian Huygens or Robert Hooke, depending on whose side you back in that fight, had invented the balance spring, a workaround for the pendulum that wasn't affected by roll, pitch, yaw, or himmel. Which one of those did I just make up? But the balance spring was very much susceptible to temperature, worse even than the traditional pendulum. Until Harrison's H3. He crafted a balance spring like his gridiron pendulum, made from sheets of two different metals, brass and steel. As the temperature rose or fell, this bimetallic strip would bend in one direction or the other, compensating its expansion or contraction and keeping its movement steady no matter what. There's a bimetallic strip today in your watch, if you have a mechanical one. There's one in your thermostat, too. There's one in your thermometer, your circuit breakers, your oven, and your fluorescent lamps. All thanks to John Harrison's H3. The H3 contained another new invention, caged roller bearings, which are present in just about every engine, motor, or, well, most machines that move, really. So you can thank Harrison for your car, too. The H3 was also far smaller than its predecessors, just 60 pounds, and it was held in a box just two feet high and one feet wide. Harrison completed it, finally, in 1757. He had been working on his marine chronometers, officially, for 27 years. But the H3 was the culmination of all that time and money and energy and suffering and obsession. Harrison, of course, hated it. The balance wheels he used in place of pendulums wouldn't error because of a ship's movement, and thanks to his bimetallic strip, they wouldn't error because of temperature either. But they would error just an eensy, teensy bit in the regular course of use. Again, it wasn't a problem to anyone else but John Harrison. H3 could easily have been put on a boat, shipped to Jamaica, and won its creator 20,000 pounds. Hell, H1 probably could have done the same thing 21 years before. But Harrison was too much of a persnickety fusspot to accept good enough for an answer. It was as he disappointedly finished the H3 that John Harrison had an idea. A new idea. A different idea. A few years earlier, he had asked John Jeffries to make him a pocket watch of his own design. Jeffries was once the protege of Honest George Graham, Harrison's advocate and benefactor, but Graham had died in 1751, 
as Harrison continued his quiet and obsessive work on the H3, and Jeffries had stepped up to fill his mentor's shoes, both as a clockmaker and as a friend to Harrison. The watch was exceptional. Jeffries was a fine craftsman, and he put his heart into it, but what made it a true marvel, unsurprisingly, was Harrison's design. It was the first pocket watch that could be wound while still operating, the first pocket watch that was resistant to temperature through the bimetallic strip, and it used a new kind of Harrison's escapements, miniaturized, that kept entirely steady time. More than 75 years earlier, Christian Huygens had developed the balance spring, which took the pocket watch from a vestigial sign of wealth to a useful timekeeper. The watch Jeffries had built for Harrison was several giant steps up from that. It was as accurate as any full-sized clock anywhere in the world. It was, Harrison realized, almost accurate enough to find your longitude by. After nearly 30 years spent trying to perfect the big, brassy sea clocks that Graham and the board had funded and supported, Harrison suddenly put the whole enterprise down and began work on H4. Sure, by name it followed the sequence of what he had built before, but in every other respect, H4 was something altogether different. It was a pocket watch, and it took John Harrison just four years to complete. People had been trying to determine their longitudes for thousands of years, all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Hundreds of people had devoted their entire lives just to move the rest of us an imperceptible tiny notch closer to a solution, and died without seeing even that. The greatest minds in science, in philosophy, in engineering, in navigation, had put their noses to the grindstone and come up empty. And in the meantime, tens of thousands or more had died for want of an answer. Now... John Harrison, the uneducated carpenter from Yorkshire, said, Here it is. Right here. In the palm of my hand. It couldn't be. The panacea, the philosopher's stone, the perpetuum mobile, was just an oversized silver watch, a little over five inches in diameter. H1 had been on display at George Graham's shop for years. People came from all around to see it. It was big, heavy, imposing, alien. It looked like something Indiana Jones might have fought Nazis for. That could be the solution, thought the public. But a watch? Just a watch? No way. The frustratingly fastidious John Harrison loved it. The guy who had talked himself out of the Longitude Prize on three separate occasions, who had found only fault in some of the most amazing machines ever built by human hands, had nothing but sweet nothings to whisper about the H4. I think I may make bold to say that there is neither any other mechanical or mathematical thing in the world that is more beautiful or curious in texture than this my watch, he wrote. And I heartily thank Almighty God that I have lived so long as in some measure to complete it. And like, he's right. The H4 still exists today, too, although unlike H's 1 through 3, it isn't run anymore. Even today, in a world where you're listening to this from a tiny metal and glass box that sinks its time from satellites in outer space, the H4 is stunning. You can see it via the Vodacast app right now. The case is silver, and it opens up to a face decorated with suitably fine and elaborate filigrees. Behind the face, the works themselves share the same fine design and elegance. 
Still a master of materials, in his race to miniaturize his frictionless wheels and escapements, Harrison managed to replace the pallets with diamonds and rubies, cut with precision down to the millimeter. Every clock that John Harrison built was a work of genius, from his early inexplicable wooden ones to the temperature-proof pendulums he built with his brother to the imposing brass sea clocks funded by Graham and the board. But the H4 is something else. It's like magic. On the face, there is an inscription. It reads, John Harrison and Son, A.D. 1759. And Son... John Harrison and Son. There are deeper questions to be asked in this story about distance, this story about time, this story about where we are. Ontological questions, metaphysical questions. Where is here? Who are we? What does it mean for things to be separated by time, by distance? And just what the hell is time anyway? Science fiction writer Ray Cummins defined it as the thing that keeps everything from happening at once. And glib as that is, it remains just about the best explanation out there. The competition, which is nearly as glib but a bit too unnerving to be embroidered on a throw pillow, is that time is the movement of entropy. An arrow taking us from order to disorder, from stasis to decay, from life to death. Time is is a unit of change, a specific sort of change that regularly steals the warmth of the universe away into the void. The H4, then, was the greatest instrument ever built for measuring that change. And in the time it had taken to build, from Harrison's youth until he was 66 years old, much had. He had a son, William, who had grown up with his father's obsessive tinkering, who came of age watching, examining, then assisting, then helping, then working alongside him. John had grown old, and many of his friends and allies had moved on to the timeless place. George Graham was gone, replaced by John Jeffries. Edmund Halley was long gone too, and James Bradley, who had signed Graham's letter endorsing Harrison, was the ailing, aging astronomer royal now. But Bradley was no longer a fan of the H1, or the H4, or John H, or Will H, or H-E double hockey sticks, or any other kind of H. When John Harrison had returned from Lisbon in 1737, his marine chronometer wasn't just light years ahead of any other clock in the world. It was also safely lapping any other possible solution to the longitude problem. But in 1759, that was no longer the case. The lunar distance method, which Amerigo Vespucci had first fumblingly tried in 1499, was finally coming into its own. The first piece of the puzzle had fallen finally into place just after Graham had given Harrison the initial loan to build H1. In late 1730, a Philadelphia optician named Thomas Godfrey had invented the octant. In the spirit of the Jacob Staves that had helped the blinded sailors of old find their latitude, the octant allowed the user to determine the distance between two objects in the sky, like the moon and a star, or the moon and the sun. The octant became the quadrant, and the quadrant became the sextant, and with each iteration, the longitude problem fluttered closer to astronomy's grasp. Edmund Halley had respected Harrison and believed in his clocks, But nevertheless, he was the Astronomer Royal, and he continued working tirelessly to pinpoint the irregular orbit of the moon. When he died, Bradley took over, and he doubled down on the mission of mapping the stars 
predicting the moon, and solving the longitude problem via lunar distance. In 1755, as Harrison was beginning work on the H-4, a German mapmaker and astronomer named Tobias Mayer sent his own submission into the Board of Longitude, detailed lunar tables, and most of the method for decoding them. Mayer's submission was, by itself, incomplete. But paired with the lunar data compiled at the Royal Observatory, James Bradley and the lunar distance method were getting closer. As Harrison cut the diamonds for his watch and welded together his bimetallic strips, Bradley began testing the lunar data he had on hand, and he felt that he should be able to use them to get that 20,000-pound number, half a degree of longitude. He was wrong. Or at least, he wasn't right yet. The terms of the Longitude Prize said that you not only needed to be able to determine your longitude, but also that the means of doing so had to be practical in the real world. To find your longitude via lunar distance, even with the work of Bradley and Mayer, required a lot of precision and a lot of complicated math. You needed to find not just the distance between the moon and whatever star you had as a guide, but you also needed their altitudes. If either object were anywhere near the horizon, you needed to take refraction into account. There was still the question of lunar parallax to puzzle over, too. It was an immensely complicated set of equations that took time and learning well beyond what could be expected of an enlisted sailor. In 1760, the year Harrison and Son presented their H-4 to the board, along with the H-3, just to be safe, Bradley's protege, Neville Masklin, whose name you should take count of, was at the island of St. Helena, where Halley had catalogued the Southern Hemisphere to observe the transit of Venus. The weather was cloudy, and he didn't succeed, but while he was sailing there and back, he put the lunar distance method to the test. He didn't manage to keep within half a degree, but pretty close. When Masklin returned to England, he told Bradley about his success. In 1761, he began working on a book that would include the lunar tables, star charts, and equations necessary to win, well, if not the prize, then at least a prize. But by then, the Harrisons had presented their clocks and asked for a trial. Bradley, now in charge of the board, hemmed and hawed. He slow-footed the trial for as long as he could, almost definitely in hopes that he and Mayer and Masculin could get to the trial phase first. That eventually he could hold it back no longer, and the HMS Detford was launched from Portsmouth on November 18, 1761. Its destination? Kingston, Jamaica. Its cargo? the H-4. Its passenger, William Harrison. Probably a good choice, since his dad hadn't been good to sail for a week to Lisbon when he was 25 years younger. The Detford first made a stop in Madeira, and in the process William stunned the captain, Dudley Diggs, by accurately predicting when they'd make landfall. He told William he would buy the first watch put up for sale. The Detford took a long two and a half months to reach Kingston, they landed on January 19, 1762. The board had sent a representative along for the ride, an astronomer named John Robeson, whose job was to set up a telescope when they disembarked, aim it towards Jupiter, and use the planet's moon to pinpoint the exact time, which could then be compared to the H-4. If the clock was off by more than four minutes, the trial would be a bust. When Robeson took the time at Kingston, he found that over the course of the 81-day journey, the Harrison's silver pocket watch had lost five. 
seconds. The way back to England was a much harder trip. It took three months, and a disconcerting portion of those three months were spent in cold surf and rough storms. The water climbed high over the decks and seeped deep into the cabin. William Harrison worried that the H-4 would be waterlogged, so he spent most of the journey carrying it aloft, wrapped in a blanket to keep it dry. When the blanket got wet, William wrapped it around himself and slept that way, hoping to dry it off with his own body heat. He fell sick, somehow, but kept on doing everything he could to protect the watch. When they made land, on March 26, 1762, Robeson determined that H-4 was off by less than two minutes. Less than two minutes for the whole voyage, from England to Madeira, from Madeira to Jamaica, and all the way back again. Less than two minutes in more than four months. Let's really drive home how incredible that is. If you took the best clock of the day not made by John Harrison and ran it for four months straight on land, indoors, under temperature control, well, first of all, you couldn't, because even the best non-Harrison clocks of the time had to be wound every 30 hours or so and had to be stopped while winding. But even putting that aside, over the course of four months, your top-notch grandfather clock in your room-temperature house would have gotten off track an average of at least two hours. This is at least partially why the clock method seemed so far-fetched. It didn't just call for a better clock, but a whole different sort of clock. A clock more accurate by several orders of magnitude. The tiny H4 was that clock. And so, at long last, 32 years after he began, John Harrison was finally awarded his 20,000 pounds from the Board of Longitude. Nah, just kidding. By all rights, the Longitude Prize should have been Harrison's. But when the board convened to discuss the matter two months after William returned to England, they said no. There are roughly two explanations for why. One innocent and one corrupt. The innocent explanation is that the terms of the prize, as written in 1714, were vague and overcomplicated, and the board couldn't figure out whether the voyage of the H-4 had actually met them or not. They weren't sure, so they said, that the time taken by Robeson at Jamaica was correct, or that it had been taken in exactly the way stipulated by the rules, and they weren't sure whether the H-4 met the practicality criterion. If only John Harrison could build it, and only at great time and expense, did it really count as a, quote, useful means for determining longitude? Those might sound like reasonable quibbles, but there's also good reason to root for the corrupt explanation. James Bradley, after all, was the astronomer royal, with more or less final say over the board, and he believed he was a short hop, skip, and a jump from nabbing the prize himself, perhaps along with Mayer or his assistant Neville Maskelin, who was at that very moment employing a battery of human calculators to assemble a naval almanac to include all the necessary charts and equations for determining longitude via lunar distance. Before William Harrison had set out with the H-4, he and his father had run into Bradley. In his diary, William wrote that Bradley had gotten in his father's face and screamed that if it weren't for him and his, quote, plaguey watch, Bradley and Tobias Mayer would already be splitting 10,000 pounds. Under Bradley's command, the board checked and rechecked the numbers for H-4's sea trial and finally concluded, after a further two months of dillying, that John Harrison had 
not won the Longitude Prize. They didn't contest the numbers. They admitted that the H-4 had only lost four seconds during its trip to Jamaica in less than two minutes in total the way there and back. However, they said, this could have been coincidence. Maybe Harrison had just gotten lucky. No, to prove his method, they would have to do it again. It was the last edict James Bradley would ever make. By the time his board's decision was announced in August, he was already dead. And so was the German Tobias Mayer. The board approved a payment of £3,000 to be delivered to his widow for his work on the lunar distance tables. John Harrison was insultingly chucked 1500 with a statement which said that the H-4 was of considerable utility to the public, even though the board contended it was not found to be of use for discovering longitude. Bradley's replacement for the position of Astronomer Royal was quickly named Nathaniel Bliss, another assistant of Bradley's, another mentor to Neville Maskelin, and another devotee to the lunar distance method. It would take another two years before the second sea trial could shove off. In the spring of 1764, William once again brought the H-4 across the Atlantic, to Barbados this time. Even if the board really had found against them for innocent reasons, the Harrisons certainly did not believe that. Their allies had been publishing attacks on Bliss and the other members in the interim, trying to convince the public that a solution to the difficult and dangerous longitude problem had been found, and that some scheming, recalcitrant scientists were holding it back and denying a good man his just reward. When William boarded the HMS Tartar for Barbados on March 28th, he brought along a friend and witness, Thomas Wyatt. If the board wanted more scrutiny for the second trial, so did the Harrisons. Fortunately, everything about the Tartar seemed honest and fair. Unfortunately, the dishonest and unfair part, at least according to the Harrisons, was waiting ahead of them in Barbados. One of the rule changes made by the board for the second trial was to have the astronomer in charge of fixing the correct time to go to Barbados ahead of the Tartar. When William and Thomas landed, they found that astronomer to be none other than Neville Maskelin, assistant to Bradley, then Bliss, and author of the almanac that could maybe win him the Longitude Prize. William and Thomas objected, and the captain of the Tartar joined them. It wasn't fair to have Maskelin, their primary competitor, calling the time. Maskelin shrugged off the suggestion of impropriety, but when he went to check Jupiter's moons, he was so flustered that he boofed it, and another astronomer had to be called in after all. Maskelin wrote it off, saying he was just ill. Anyway, the H-4 had succeeded. It had managed to keep the time within 39 seconds over 47 days. Not nearly as miraculous as its first go-around, but plenty good enough to win the Longitude Prize. Or so you would think. Faced with yet another touchdown from John Harrison, the Board of Longitude again moved the goalposts. They would give Harrison and Son 10,000 pounds, not 20, and only once a number of conditions had been met. First of all, John Harrison would have to detail the precise workings of H-4, both in writing and for a panel of experts in front of whom he would disassemble his baby, showing off each part and reconstructing it. The panel would be made up of six people. Three of them, William Matthews, Thomas Mudge, and Larkham Kendall, would be watchmakers. Then there was Reverend William Ludlam, Chair of Mathematics at Cambridge, and Dr. John Mitchell, 
chair of geology at Cambridge, who was the first person to discover the inverse square law of magnetism, the first person to correctly ascertain what an earthquake was, and the first person to propose the existence of black holes. Not that any of that was important for John Harrison. Finally, the sixth member of the panel would be the Astronomer Royal. Not Nathaniel Bliss. Like Bradley, he died shortly after ruling against Harrison, almost like it was a curse. In his place, a new, new Astronomer Royal was named to loom over the deconstruction of H4. Neville motherfucking Mescalin. I'm so glad his name is Neville. From a storytelling perspective, I mean. Like, apologies to all the Nevilles out there, but it really is just the perfect name for a snidely arch-villain, isn't it? Who tied Snorky to the railroad tracks? Why, it was I, Neville Maskelin! I looked it up. The earliest melodrama character to be tied to railroad tracks was named Snorky. So if you take nothing else out of this three-plus-hour saga, remember that. Snorky. Any hoozles, Neville Maskelin makes an easy villain. That's certainly how John and William Harrison saw him, and it is hard to tell Harrison's story without signing on to that view, tacitly or otherwise. The most famous and successful account of this story is Longitude, the true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of his time, by Davis Sobel. There's a pretty good chance that you've read Longitude, in which case you may by now be wondering why you're still listening to this. If you haven't read Longitude, you absolutely should. I'm linking to it in the Vodacast app right now and in the show notes to boot. It is a truly delicious book, and it did a lot of heavy lifting for Harrison's reputation. It's difficult to write about Harrison without being influenced by Sobel, and I certainly have been. It's also hard to look at the rest of this story, the decision on H4 and everything that came after, without feeling sympathetic to the Harrisons. Both father and son, and most of their friends and relations, believed that the board was biased against them, and that Neville Maskelin in particular was corrupted by his own interests in the lunar distance method. They believed he was greedy, jealous, conniving. And it's hard, especially after Sobel's wonderful book, not to agree with them. So... As we get into the last leg, where the view of Mescaline looks so dark and dire, I'm going to take just a few minutes to say that this portrait of the fifth astronomer royal is wrong, or at least substantially incomplete. To get the 10,000 pounds, half of what he thought was out him, Harrison not only had to write up how the mechanism worked and show the mechanism off to the panel of experts, including Mescaline, he also had to make the mechanism of the H4 public. Like Hans Liberty, whose telescope patent was denied and leaked, the board insisted that the knowledge for building H4 must become free for the people to share. Not only that, but upon delivery of the payment, the board would take possession of all of Harrison's marine chronometers, H's 1, 2, 3, and the precious, beautiful H4. Mescalin himself came to pick up the clocks, and according to the Harrisons, was quite careless in putting them in a cheap wagon on a rough road. This, Harrison and his defenders thought, was all of a piece with their view that the board, and Mescalin specifically, were out to get him. But, while that is possible, there's a big counterfactual sitting in plain view. The board thought they were entitled to the chronometers because they had paid for them. See, the trick is that between 1730 and 1764, the board had already given Harrison several thousand pounds to build his marine chronometers. Each time, Harrison promised them a clock, and then, instead of delivering one, he asked for more money to build another, and another, and another. 
In all that time, the board hadn't given out any other funds of note. Harrison was their biggest expense. If anything, the Board of Longitude had favored Harrison's clock method. To get the balance of what Harrison thought to be his due reward, minus the ten grand and the several thousand in annuities, the board said that someone would have to first build a new clock off of Harrison's plans. They also implied that it would help his case if Harrison himself could build another two. All of which miffed our brilliant clockmaker, especially since the board was now in possession of H4, meaning that he would have to build the new H5 and H6 without direct reference. To Harrison, this seemed like more hoops to jump through, set up by Mescalin and his board to deprive him of his just dessert. But, from the perspective of the board, it probably seemed like the height of common sense. The purpose of the prize, and the board, and the Longitude Act itself wasn't to pat some lone inventor on the back and call it a day. The purpose of the entire enterprise wasn't just to show that a single person could solve the Longitude problem, the purpose was to make sure that everyone could. Every season, millions of pounds were lost for lack of longitude. And more than occasionally, lives were lost, too. Putting an end to that sad state of affairs, that was the mandate of the Board of Longitude. And the result had not yet been achieved. This isn't to say that John Harrison was without some very good reason to believe that he was the subject of a conspiracy. The way the board altered and amended their rules, the way its members were so closely entwined with his competition, not to mention that damning interaction William wrote about in his diary, where James Bradley angrily blamed them for keeping him from the prize. From Harrison's perspective, at the very least, it all looked pretty bad. And there were more events to come that definitely added to his opinion. For one, when the board took possession of his timepieces and dropped H1 in the process, they began their own independent testing of H4. Over the course of 10 months, it was put through its paces at, where else, the Royal Observatory at Greenwich. By, who else? Neville Maskelin. For some reason, or combination of reasons, the H4 performed much worse there than it ever did anywhere else. John and William Harrison knew why. Neville Mescalin must have been cheating. It was now 1766, and his nautical almanac was just about ready to be printed. It contained several years' worth of lunar positioning data, which, along with a good sextant, might be enough to win him the prize overseen by the board that he oversaw. When Mescalin had gone to Barbados to officiate the second trial of the H4, he had also put the lunar distance method to the test. The clock had worked far better, pinning their location to within 10 miles. But the moon had done a good job too, returning a result within 30. Each method had met the half-degree threshold to win the 20,000 pounds. But while the Harrisons saw this all as evidence of Maskelin's prejudice against them, it can also be seen the other way. No one had been given the prize, because the problem wasn't yet solved, just hinted at. I think it's pretty clear that the board was biased towards the lunar distance method, since it was comprised mainly of navigators and astronomers. But there were good arguments to be made for either method being the solution. The good thing about Harrison's was that all you needed was a clock. The lunar distance method not only required all the work of compiling the nautical almanac, but navigators had to be trained to make use of it. It was complicated, and it was time-consuming. It took four hours to work through the equations, and required someone educated in math and science to do the working. There was something very elitist about the lunar distance method, which conveniently rides parallel to the academics and officers who favored it. The bad thing about Harrison's method was the same as the good. 
you needed a clock. So far, only one of them existed. And even when more were made, they remained incredibly expensive. The H4's pallets were made of diamonds, after all. That's not exactly the material of the working class, is it? There were other problems with both methods. Weather was a big one for the lunars. If it was cloudy or stormy or the seas were too rough to deploy a sextant, you were left without a location until the skies cleared. Same thing during a new moon. On the other hand, once the skies did clear, you could pick things back up and find your location again. If Harrison's clock got out of whack, even for a day, the longitude was lost completely. You would have no way to find your location again until you made land. What made the most sense, some argued, was to use both to have the naval almanac and a clock. If the weather turned rough, you had your marine chronometer to turn to, but if something happened to the marine chronometer, you could always turn back to the moon. This is one of the biggest points against the Harrison's conspiracy theory, because one of the people who argued most loudly for this dual longitude method was, well, you know who it was, it was Neville Maskelyne. And hey, while we're at it, we might as well get the other two biggest points out in the open. The same year that Maskelyne was supposedly cheating in the H-4 trials in Greenwich, he was also sponsoring William Harrison to become a member of the Royal Society. Even though he and his father and all of their friends were running his name through the mud all the way up and down the London streets, accusing him of this and that impropriety, Maskelyne was still trying to help. Just as he was when he approved annuities to be paid to them makes you feel a little bad for hating him, doesn't it? Well, strap in, because we've got one more to go. The biggest hitch in the Harrison's belief that Neville Maskelyne was trying to sabotage them in order to get the Longitude Prize all for himself is that Neville Maskelyne never applied for it. Never. It's entirely possible that he had dreams of it back when he was working for Bradley or Bliss, but after he was named Astronomer Royal, he never made even the slightest motion to be rewarded for his own contributions to the longitude problem, which were unquestionably substantial. The board did pay out £3,000 to Tobias Mayer's widow, and they gave out much smaller prizes to a handful of others who contributed to the lunar distance method, £50 each to astronomer Richard Dunthorne and mathematician Israel Lyons, for instance. But Maskelyne never got a penny for his own work on the greatest problem in human history, outside his salary as Astronomer Royal. Okay, we have reached the end of the Neville Maskelyne apology tour. All of it is true, and all of it is worth considering. I try not to go for the simple version of things on this show, even if it does mean going long, jokeless spurts here and again. With all of that said, there is still the question of Maskelyne's trial of the H-4 at Greenwich, which he reported as a dud. Maskelyne had put the H-4 through a series of mock journeys. Basically, he put it on a table, wound it every day, and left it alone for six weeks, the average length of a trip across the Atlantic. Then he opened it up and checked its time. The first go-out, he found that the watch had gotten fast by 13 minutes, 20 seconds. That translated to an error of more than 3 degrees of longitude. On its best mock showing, the H-4 had still been almost 6 minutes off, almost a degree and a half. He told the board that Harrison's clock was not accurate enough to determine longitude for a long sea journey. It might not even be good enough to do so for a brief one. Why H-4 failed to perform under Maskelyne is the great unknown in the story of John Harrison. 
it's possible that the watch was damaged when it was taken by the board along with the other clocks. It's also possible that when Harrison took it apart for the panel, it was put back together in less than perfect shape. H4 also had a shortcoming compared to its larger older siblings. Unlike the big brass boxes that preceded it, which were built to be frictionless, H4 needed oil to operate. It could be that when Mescalin showed up to take Harrison's clocks, H4's oil was old and the watch in need of cleaning that Mescalin either didn't know or didn't care to give. Seeing as H4 could go three years without such a cleaning, however, that seems unlikely. John and William Harrison knew exactly what went wrong in Greenwich. The H4 wasn't the problem. Masculine was. They didn't accuse him of outright falsifying his results, but made a long and angry series of claims about how he had purposely mistreated and failed to care for their incredible watch. All things considered, and even with every point we can put in Masculine's personal favor, this does seem like the most probable explanation. In the meantime, there were two more watches being built. Larkham Kendall, who had been on the panel for H4's vivisection, was busy building his own version of the Incredible Clock to satisfy one of the board's questions, whether anyone other than Harrison could make one. The question was only becoming more pressing. When Kendall finished his watch, called, naturally, the K1 in 1769, John Harrison was 76 years old. His sight was failing, his hands were arthritic, and he suffered from periodic gout. If the skill and the secret necessary to make an accurate sea clock only lived inside John Harrison, then English society was at fast risk of losing any hope of creating a fleet of longitude machines. Luckily, K-1 was a success. William Harrison was present at the board to examine it and said that in some ways it was even superior to the one he had built with his father. In 1772, K-1 was sent to sea on board the HMS Resolution for Captain James Cook's circumnavigation of the world. It kept nearly perfect time, and Captain Cook started referring to it as my trusted friend. He took it with him every time he sailed for the rest of his life. John Harrison had built another clock too, a copy timekeeper called H-5. To satisfy Mescalin and the board, however, he would need to build yet another. John Harrison's health had only further declined. He was now 79, and there was no way he could repeat the trick a third time. William, for all his skill, probably couldn't have managed on his own either. More than that, the Harrisons were done playing games with the board. Whether the demands and requests were honest or calculated, the Harrisons were through meeting them. So they went a different way. They took H5, the only one of the marine chronometers still in their possession, directly to King George. King George had his own private observatory and his own private astronomer, Stephen Demonbray, and the Harrisons requested they personally examine the H5. The aged Harrison, Dr. Demonbray, and the king himself oversaw a 10-week test of H5 at Richmond Observatory. When it was over, they found that H5 was accurate to within a third of a second per day. These people have been cruelly wronged, King George told Demonbray. By God, Harrison, I will see you righted. He instructed the Prime Minister to give John Harrison a fair shake at Parliament. They finally awarded him £8,750, more than covering the balance from the Longitude Prize. It wasn't the Longitude Prize, though, and Parliament made the terms of the award somewhat ambiguous. It was as much in honor of his age as it was his achievements. Still, for once in his long life, John Harrison was satisfied with the imperfect and saw in Parliament's award, finally, 
vindication. He died three years later. The actual full 20,000 pound longitude award eventually went to no one. A few small prizes were given out over the years, usually to clockmakers for improving, miniaturizing, or cheapening the sea clocks descended from John Harrison's. For the rest of the 18th century, it was Mesklin's Marine Almanac that did most of the navigating. Initially, a chronometer cost a third as much as the ship it was built for, but that cost quickly fell. Not only were accurate clocks getting cheaper and faster to build, but unlike the ships they were built for, they lasted. By the early 1800s, a ship was more likely to be equipped with a chronometer than not, and some even carried three, or four, or five, or nine, but never two. The longitude problem began with a shipwreck, and it ended with one too. The Arniston was an East Indiaman, sailing for England out of Ceylon, with 378 people aboard, mostly invalid soldiers, along with 14 women and 25 children. On May 30th, 1815, at around 8 p.m., the Arniston smashed against a reef off the western cape of South Africa, killing all but six of the crewmen who, after a time, were rescued by a boy from the nearby town of Wunhuskruns, which has ever since been called Arniston. The cause of the accident was easy enough to determine. The Arniston hadn't been equipped with a chronometer. The captain, George Simpson, had said he couldn't afford it and asked the ship's owners if they could outfit one. They refused and told Simpson they would find another captain if he wouldn't go out clockless. The Arniston instead had to rely upon its escorts, the HMS Africaine and HMS Victor, each of which were equipped with chronometers. Every day, they would signal the Arniston to supply the ship with its longitude. But on May 26th, there was a storm, and Arniston was separated from her escorts. All alone, Simpson had to try to navigate the old-fashioned way, by dead reckoning. He ordered the ship north to St. Helena, thinking he was around the Western Cape. He wasn't. And that was that. After the wreck of the Arniston, most underwriters refused to cover a ship without a chronometer, and the British Navy and Merchant Marines made the mandatory equipment. By the 1830s, the lunar distance method was like a nautical appendix. Every ship carried the almanac, and most crews had someone on board who knew how to use it, but it was like a trick, a relic, like writing checks. Clocks were the way, just as John Harrison had said. Of course, and you've probably guessed this by now, there are two noticeable vestiges of the lunar distance method. Eventually, everyone agreed that the prime meridian should fall along the Royal Observatory, where Flamsted, Halley, Boyle, Bliss, and Maskelyne had done so much work cataloging the stars and the moon. And while sea clocks, pocket watches, deck clocks, and marine chronometers of various shapes and sizes became the main navigational aid for all ships at sea, they all had to be set to align with solar noon there at the Royal Observatory. In, ah well, <laughs> you know where. Say it with me one last time. Greenwich. The longitude problem gave us maps of the stars, accurate clocks, the speed of light, thermometers, thermostats, internal combustion engines, naval almanacs, and so much more. Finally, in the end, it gave us Greenwich Mean Time. And three and a half hours of podcasts. Holy shit.
Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. We've got a website, constantpodcast.com. We've got a merch store, which you can find via that website. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash theconstant, where you can sign up to support the making of this show. And we have feelings, which you can make sore by rating us five stars wherever you listen and leave a nice review if you want to, too. We're also a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Ministry of Ideas. On the latest episode, host Zachary Davis explores our fraught relationship with anger. We often feel pressure to suppress it in ourselves, trying to stay calm and turn the other cheek. But anger is our natural response to injustice and can catalyze us to fight for change. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where I, again, do not have a witty longitude-related tag, but I do have a reminder that the 150th anniversary of the Great Fire just passed, for what that's worth, this has been The Constant. He was also, probably not coincidentally, a foul-mouthed drunken hooligan known for painting the town. Think about that before you start writing me bad reviews about my fucking cussing. <laughs> I just don't understand why people get upset about fucking swear words. What are we, fucking eight? Holy shit. <laughs> oh, God. Let's stop. Let's stop. We're going to stop this. We're going to cut this. They're words. Not to mention that fuck, in particular, fuck is like the most versatile and interesting word in the entire English language by a fucking country fucking mile. All right, anyway. Celebrate it. Cel-a-fucking-brate it. Sorry. This is probably going in the end. <laughs>